Welcome to the Dreamcast Podcast. My name is Daniel Bozinski, and my goal is to help you find purpose and become the greatest version of yourself. Every week, our promise is to deliver one-of-a-kind stories of individuals who are pioneering purpose in their life. These are people I personally would have loved to have as mentors and leaders in my life in the past, and now they're right here at our fingertips. The Dreamcast guests are willing to be authentic, genuine, and human about their struggles and success. To me, purpose is priceless, and if you're looking to make an investment into your life yourself, I believe you've come to the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get started. Well, welcome back to the Dreamcast. Really excited about this show. I just had our pre-call with this individual, and man, are you guys in for the ride of your life. Today's guest is hungry for change. An education philanthropist and a change agent, he believes that logic doesn't change people's minds. It takes an emotional impact to change them. He founded and organized a documentary in 2015 called Most Likely to Succeed, a Sundance Festival choice, the first national campaign to inspire and empower communities across the country to revolutionize their school for the 21st century. He was also the executive producer for it and another film, The Hunting Ground, which was both premiered at the 2015 Sundance Festival. He also co-authored a book titled Most Likely to Succeed, Preparing Our Kids for the Innovation Era. Most Likely to Succeed has over 3,000 screenings to date, averaging about 200 per month, showing to audiences as large as 1,500 people. Our guest today is focused on issues at the intersection of education and innovation. He lives with his wife, Elizabeth, and two children in Charlottesville, Virginia, and is living his purpose one student at a time. Ted Dintersmith, welcome to the Dreamcast. Great to be here. I love what you're doing. Man, we've got some great things in common. Both of our wives are named Elizabeth. Uh, we're both passion, uh, passionate about school education transformation. Like, this is going to be fun. I'm ready. I, my seatbelt is fastened. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about yourself. For everyone kind of, you know, tuning into our conversation here, uh, they have no idea who Ted is. So give us some background and kind of how you arrived where you are right now. Sure. I, I spent my professional career, and that's about 30 years of it, um, in the world of innovation. And with a startup and then in venture capital, backed all these great entrepreneurs. Um, and, and over time realized as much as I love what they were doing and, and love the profession, that easily half of the businesses we backed, and I was with Charles River Ventures, which is one of the top few venture firms in the country, easily half of what we backed were, were companies intent on bringing massive productivity advances to certain industries. And what I realized over a period of time is that productivity advances translate into eliminating lots and lots of jobs. And so kind of in the back of my mind was this view that, that we're heading into a world where every routine and structured job is on its way out. And, and we're not losing, despite what you read in the papers and hear from politicians, we're not losing manufacturing jobs to China or Mexico. They're just going away. They're going away to automation and that trend is accelerating. So that was kind of my business professional perspective. And then with my you own were, kids. You were initially. a venture capitalist. That's what you were, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 And I was a good one. And uh, But then with my kids, I sort of went from trusting what was going on in school to be sort of developing some concerns to then it turned into flat out being alarmed. And And the alarm point was I realized over a period of time that school consciously – tries to eliminate characteristics from our kids that they desperately need in a world of innovation and reinforce characteristics that nobody cares about. And that it's not an accident. You know, that it goes back to a model of school that was designed originally in 1893 to prepare kids for assembly line jobs for the Henry Fords of the world. You right. know, those jobs are going away, but the school model persists. And so with that, I said, what can I do to make a difference? I had this idea of a documentary. I found a guy named Greg Whiteley, who I think is arguably America's top documentarian today, he took on the project of doing Most Likely to Succeed. And, and you like fully self-funded it, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, I wrote the checks and helped, but he, you know, if you love the film, give the credit to Greg. And uh, we did 28 major film festivals, including Sundance, AFI, and Tribeca. I turned down the online places who made offers for the film, and we just do community screenings because... The film, when a group in a school watches it together, they get really excited about what they could do, what 
our students and teachers are capable of achieving if we get out of their way, if we support them, if we let them innovate in advance. So it's amazing that like you kind of did this. How old are your kids right now? Mine are now 20 and 18. So Right. And it's almost like you saw this whole innovation error and a lot of what you're talking about. I mean, we've had um, an individual on the show. His name is Frank Cassell. He's all about robotic process automation. He started a huge movement with and was at the the, the, the front end of the entire outsourcing uh, innovation period as well. And it's it, that's what you're talking about. We have so much content going around about everyone losing their jobs to outsourcing, but it's like, no, the next thing is going to be tens of thousands, millions of jobs completely replaced by robots. I mean, it's not that far away. And that's what you're talking about, right? It's like we're teaching these kids based on a, the creation of education at the time of the 1800s that's now like almost not where it needs to be, right? I mean, what's the appropriate way to say it? Yeah, it's obsolete. And <laughs> you know, the way to think about it is if you, if you look at a kindergarten kid today, by the time they're out of school, there will not be a single routine job left in the economy, period. Now, now, on the one hand, that's alarming and it should be alarming. But on the other hand, what I say to people is, look at the average kindergarten kid. You know, they are bold. They, are, they ask a million questions. They think outside of the box. They stare down failure on a regular basis. You know, the, the, the characteristics we want our young adults to have they're in these kids from the get-go, right. and and they're in these kids whether they're in a rich house or a poor house, a well-off community, a challenged community. They're just in kids, and if we stopped erasing them from kids, boy, that would be an enormous step forward. That's huge. Okay, so I want to I want to hear. We were kind of having this conversation about, and I, your perspective about teaching and learning. What are they? How are they different? What's the crossover? Is there any crossover? Well, a lot of people, I think if you ask most people about those two words, teaching and learning, they'd say they're synonyms. They're worlds apart. And so when I go to schools, whether it's a school that most people would say is a dropout factory, or I visited almost all the schools that are on anybody's list of the top 20 elite private schools in the country, I visited them all. <clears throat> Where schools fail kids, is when an adult is doing almost all the talking in the class, kids are scribbling down notes, memorizing it for a test, and then moving on to the next assignment. There is really almost no learning that goes on in that process. Right. And I'll give you an example. Lawrenceville Academy in Princeton, it's 62K a year for high school. To their credit, they did this experiment where they took kids who had done really well on their finals in June, and when they came back in September, they gave them not the entire final, just the high-level concepts that the faculty thought every kid had mastered. Well, the average grade went from a B-plus to an F. You know, if our, <laughs> if our top students in, the, in a school on anybody's list of the top 20 are actually not retaining much of anything from a course, who is, right? Who is? <clears throat> what you realize, and, and anecdotally, when I ask audiences, you know, like, think about your best learning experiences. When did you really learn something? Almost always people say it's something they had to one way or another figure out for themselves. Maybe they got some help, some guidance. Maybe they went online and watched a YouTube video. Maybe an adult gave them some tips. But fundamentally, they learned it. You know, right. it, they didn't memorize it. They didn't take notes on it. You know, they learned it. In the book that I wrote with Tony Wagner, we had this example at the beginning, which people seem to love on – on what would happen if we counted on schools to teach kids how to ride a bicycle. And we had this bicycle aptitude test with these standardized test questions. We talked about how kids would watch videos and they take notes and they read books. Kids would never get on the bicycle. We'd right. never let them fall off a bicycle because we don't want anybody to get hurt. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and all these kids would come out of school and whether you did really well on the bicycle aptitude test or you did poorly, None of these kids would have ever ridden a bicycle and none of these kids would ever have learned how to ride a That's bicycle. That's a great example. It's like, and, that is amazing. We do it over and over. You know, you look at history, right? Kids memorize facts, but they never are taught to think like an historian. Look at science. They memorize definitions, but they're never taught to think like a scientist. Math, right? We, we teach, we, we do, it's a joke, right? We teach our kids low-level symbolic arithmetic, 
but they never think creatively or conceptually like mathematicians. You know, on and on. Most you you talk to anybody in your field, you know, journalists and and media people, and they they will almost always say they learn the most by when they were editor of their high school newspaper, not from a journalism class. It's like while I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, it's like taking an entire year to talk about how the wheel turns and all of the geometry and how when you put pressure on the pedal that it moves the, you know, on a bicycle and then <laughs> just throwing someone on a bicycle and being like, well, you know, they know how to do it. They took a whole year in classes and it's like, no, they actually have no idea yep. how to do it. That's a, that's an amazing example. So, but I want to hear now how from the teaching to the learning teaching like you talked about that, basically, how do we teach our kids? Or are we helping the kids learn? There's a big difference. How are, how are you seeing that actually applied? Well, when I find great learning experiences, almost invariably, the adult is on the side. And what they've really done a great job of is, is connecting kids to problems that kids care about. It could be a problem in their community. It could be a problem that the kids themselves think is important. It could be a really thought-provoking question related to something that's in the course discipline area. But it's something that, that fundamentally when you ask kids, do you think you're working on something that matters, their answer is yes. You know, whereas in almost all of mainstream America, if you ask kids, what are you doing and why, it's, well, this is what I have to do, or this is the assignment, or the teacher told me to, or whatever. You know, and, and the kids kind of go through the motions. They know it's it's not authentic. And so... When you start to see kids unleashed on problems they care about, where they're given access to whatever resources they need to teach themselves the things they need to get good at to make progress on the, pro you know, on the project, where the adult's role is really to inspire the kids, to guide believe the kids. Believe in them. Yeah, I like that. To, to believe in them. But also, and this is important, to hold them accountable to a high standard of work. You know, we're mm -hmm. not doing any kid any favor if they, you know, let's take an example, one that I like, which is a kid, maybe somebody, a family down the street lost a parent in a drive-by shooting, and a kid in the school says, I want to do a fundraiser to help that family. Well, you know, if they do a miserable, underwhelming fundraiser, you know, what was the point? They didn't really right. accomplish anything. But if the adult's helping them, if an adult supports that, if they actually get school credit for it, but if you really say, if you're going to do it, do it really well. You know, have a clear concept of what you're going to do. Market it well. Describe it well. Get good at the writing to tell people what it is. Project management skills, organization skills, the, the math behind accounting for it. You know, any of these things could be a window to to not just real learning, but to transforming lives. Right. And 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 yet you realize you start to look at this and say, why isn't this most of school? Why isn't this all of school? Instead of for almost all of our kids, it's none of school. That that that's a big miss. That's well. A big so gap. here's the other, just a, a quick thought too is most and and when I've been interacting with a lot of schools and superintendents and assistant superintendents and principals and teachers, most of the teachers and all of them, if you talk to them about all of this stuff, the beauty is is they're all on par, whether they have language or not with it they realize that the funding from the state and the government comes from their ability to achieve certain levels of academic scores. And it's almost as if the students are at the mercy and the schools are at the mercy of the funding. When in reality, they really do want to see these kids succeed, right? They really, they do believe, they've given their life to see them change. And then they get, they realize, man, like, we're here helping them get a bigger SAT score or whatever the other high school scores are. And at the end of the day, I mean, so what has been your experience when you kind of bring these into schools? What's been the, the energy around this concept? Well, at first I want to be, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't have to bring these into schools. They, they're in nooks and crannies of every school in America. You, right. you, we could go to any school and we will find a teacher or two teachers that are doing the most amazing things, sometimes more than two, but but hardly ever more than 25%. It's almost always a few, not most, not all. Right. You know, but to your point, show me a teacher that didn't decide to teach because they wanted to change lives. I mean, these are the most dedicated, caring people in the world. These are people that will stand between their student and 
a, a shooter's bullet. I mean, they will give their lives for their kids. So we true. trust we trust these teachers with the lives of our kids, but we don't trust them with their lessons. I mean, like, how can this possibly be? And, and it's largely because we obsess around measuring progress on something and don't really think much about what we're measuring, right? We, we take this false comfort that because we can get every few weeks new test scores, you know, and nobody steps back and says, test scores about what? You know, like, I, I know a lot about math. I mean, you know, I'm... I'm Got a PhD in math modeling from Stanford in the School of Engineering, so I'm not like a piker when it comes to math. <laughs> but most of grade seven through twelve math is something that no adult ever uses, including scientists and engineers. And, and when they fall back on this about how it's teaching them how to think or it's a fundamental, they they don't people who say that don't understand math. Right. It it, it doesn't right. You know, factoring polynomials for two months in school. It's only being done because it's on the SAT or on standard of learning test. It's, scientists and engineers don't do it, and it really doesn't give you any insight into anything. And on and on. I mean, the entire math curriculum. I mean, I don't, I don't even remember what a polynomial is. I mean, I don't even remember what that is. I learned it, and it was like because I needed to get a good grade or else I'd get grounded, and that's about it. But the heartbreak, right, is it doesn't have to be that way. Right. You know, when, when I guest teach and I, I say, let's, let's spend an hour on estimation math. These kids come to life. Kids that think of themselves as bad math students are actually really creative and think outside of the box. And when you start to, to give them really thought-provoking questions that in many ways lead to some of the fundamentals. I mean, if you're going to do estimation math, you've got to do decimals and fractions and percentages, and you've got to do ratios, and you've got to do understand the logic behind assumptions and the implications of assumptions. But it's meaningful, right? Right. Well, why is it we don't do estimation math in any of our schools? It's because by definition, there's not one right answer. You know, it's it's a creative process that begs for a range of answers. And so you can't boil it down to A, B, C, or D on a standardized test. And so factoring polynomials drives out estimation math. It makes so, no sense, but that's so what we do. I just want to say this too. For everyone to kind of tune in, I, I got to see the, the entire premiere of this. Uh, you kind of got to send it over to me and, and watch it in this group. Uh, position here most likely to succeed how can people be a part of one of the screenings how can they host a screening how can they gather a group for the screening because it's pretty remarkable um if you're listening right now you have any level of connection or passion for this i think that we need to connect people to this solution which is this this uh the screening yeah the website url is mltsfilm.org mlts like most likely to succeed you know, in a world of Google, just Google documentary most likely to succeed. That'll take you there. And right on the homepage is host a screening. And <clears throat> we've had, you know, as I said, 200 a month doing it. And it can just transform a school. If you bring a community together, ideally parents, teachers, and students, I guarantee you once they've seen this film, they get so excited about what we could do to elevate learning in our schools. We also have on the website a set of 14 short videos that are parents can use at home with their kids or teachers can use with their students or teachers can work with each other or a principal can work with teachers for professional development. And we're getting great reception on that. Uh, we've got a Facebook page, uh, Twitter, follow me on Twitter at at Dintersmith. I'm always uh, anxious to get more people to follow me. Um, and so and we'll put all of these links below as well, just in FYI. Yeah. And so we're doing things, but this film is, um, as I say, it's, it's a great vehicle because once it does two things, right? It gets people really excited. It doesn't jam a point of view down people's throat. It just shows students learning really differently. It shows teachers trusted to teach to their strengths and passions. It shows a school that isn't teaching to the test. And it shows kids working on things where you say, yeah, that looks kind of like what you do in life. That doesn't look like sitting in a row and memorizing stuff or taking notes. And, and so we and what do they require to do, though? They're like they have to bring a group together, right? Yeah, the school. So we, you know, so it's organize an event, you know, show it in your auditorium, bring everybody together. Uh, is, I priced it as, it, you know, initially, I have to be honest, I, I did it for free initially. And then I got this feedback from people that said, well, if we're going to bring everybody together, we want it to be a good film. And I said, like, 28 major film festival, this is a great film. Um, and the people would then say, well, if it's great, why is it free? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, and I can sort of understand that. So we, we charge, a, I think, a really reasonable screening fee. We waive it if any school has a budget. I mean, it would break my heart if a school community wants to see it and they just 
you know, they, they don't have the money to do it. We make that happen. But the most important thing is make it an event. Use it right. as a platform to bring your school community together and just engage in thoughtful discussion. What do we want to accomplish with our kids during these precious years when we are either giving them a running start in life or not helping them or actually impairing their life prospects? And, and I hate to say it because it sounds so harsh, but I think most schools actually damage the chances of the kids' life in a world of innovation. And, and doing that on purpose to kids just seems unacceptable. Right. So talk to me about what that is like, because a lot of that, like you said, it is a damaging process. And, and thankfully, some of it isn't on purpose. Thankfully, some of it's by default, but by default to me is on purpose. Because if we're not on purpose to like change something, we're just kind of on purpose to not. And so how is that happening? Because I want you to kind of paint that very clear. Well, you know, so in a lot of ways, I mean, for, for starters, I love this quote from somebody senior at Apple who said, we've decided any employee that needs a manager is no longer employable. So, so, <laughs> so, so think about this. Do we, through the process of school, encourage kids as they go higher in grades to operate more on their own, to exercise a large degree of personal agency, or do we train them to jump through hoops and follow instructions? We train them to, to jump through hoops. When I go to high schools, about the only question students ask in classes I observe is, will this be on the test? Or what do I need to do to get an A? I'll give you an example. This brings it to life. Uh, I was in North Dakota. I spent a bunch of time there in August and September. A second grade teacher in Fargo, Kayla Delzer, did this really great thing. She's done it for four years where she gives her kids one day a week. She calls it Google time or free time. Second graders, pick something you're interested in and run with it. And you observe that class and these kids all have things they can't wait to dive in on. Different things, they pick it, they run with it, they manage their own learning, they make enormous progress, they can't wait to get to school. Fast forward, move up to mine at North, North, uh, North Dakota, high school teacher there teaching juniors in English heard about this and said, this is a great idea. So he tells his juniors in high school English class, one day a week, you can come to this class and work on whatever you're interested in. What he related to me, and this is heartbreaking, he said most of the kids in his class then did a Google search, what should I be interested in? Wow. Think about that. So we are, we are hollowing out the inquisitiveness, the curiosity, the ability to manage their own efforts. We actively erode that in our kids instead of reinforce it. Hmm. I, I go to a lot of high-powered schools where they limit or actually tells kids not to ask questions in class because they have so much content to cover. It's particularly true in AP courses where you just have to rush through this massive amount of largely low-level content to get from A to Z in the class. If your kids want to go deep, if they want to spend in history more than two days on the Civil War, you run the risk of not getting to the end of the curriculum and having kids get twos and threes on their AP instead of fours and fives. And so... That's an important skill. Ask questions. Well, we actually discourage that. You know, um, that's crazy. I mean, that is like yeah, think, think like, outside of the box. Be creative. Be bold. Right. Do something other people don't think. We we will. Many schools penalize kids. You got the right answer, but you didn't do it the way we taught you. Right. I mean, really? How could we possibly live with that? Right. The kid comes up with an unusual, creative way to solve a problem. Shouldn't that be celebrated instead of penalized? And so I mean, that is like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it should be celebrated. Community, community service. So many schools I go to, I'll ask them. I always love to ask a question. Tell me about community service. Most schools say nothing. Okay, that sounds terrible, but it's actually pretty good because the schools that say they do it almost always say it's mandatory 20 hours a year to graduate. Students pick from three options defined by the faculty. And if you do anything wrong, we double down or triple down with more hours of community services punishment. I say, are you, are you trying to get kids excited about making the world better? Or do you want them to equate making the world better with, you know, eating Being punished? Uncooked, yeah, <laughs> eating uncooked Brussels sprouts. I mean, come on. We can do so much better, right? We can do so much better. Man, so here's one of the things. I mean, we, we talked about it. We're going to be... On my side, I'm going to be launching our High School Impact Purpose Program uh, March 15th, and it's going to be a full-on 12-month, uh, 48-lesson, 
And it's all really about teaching kids the life skills and helping them create a life plan, right? So a lot of it's helping them find out what they're interested in, passionate about, what their calling is per se, writing a vision for their life. And, and it's actually starting the journey so that you can always be revising your vision, revising your mission, creating your values that you're going to stand for that when mommy and daddy aren't looking over your shoulder or when the principal is not ready to punish you, that you're doing the right things because you know it's going to get you to the right place. So we're out, we're, we're, we're rolling this out pretty soon. And uh, most individuals don't know about it. This might be their first time hearing this. Um, but I want to hear what your perspective is on. So where I'm starting is, is I think that what has made me successful, quote unquote, in my life has been my life skills, period. I mean, I just think that having simplistic life skills, a lot of the interactive learning experiences that I've created are around human interaction, like doing eye contact exercises where you speak purpose words over each other or words of hope, or you, you help kids connect with other kids. And, um, I want to hear your perspective on life skills from a high school, uh, what, how, how they're, how they're actually developing the life skills, these students. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I have a TEDx talk, um, and, and I'll, Sounds like you can put that on your on your website as well. But um, if you Google my name and TEDx, you'll find it. And and you know the title is preparing kids for life, not standardized test. And you know I went through this process. My kids were in middle school, and I got this note from the school said brand new initiative to teach your kids important life skills. And and I I went full of anticipation. And you know it was really disappointing. It was like we'll we'll teach kids not to smoke by showing them videos of or still images of you know lung cancer and tongue cancer. And I said like, but, but it prompted me. I started to say, what, what would actually prepare my kids for life? And I made these lists and, and I started then comparing it to what they were doing in school. And when you're actually systematic about it, and I'd encourage any parent who's listening to do exactly that, list what you want your kid to get good at that will help them in life and start spot checking their assignments in school and ask yourself, how can I make a case that this assignment helps them get good at something I value? I think they'll find what I found. There's no connection or it detracts. And, and so you start to look at it and people say it is these life skills. And they, they take a range of things. They could be distinctive competencies like creative problem solving or collaboration. We never teach collaboration in schools or uh, critical analysis. I mean, the uh, Stanford Reading Like an Historian program just did an study of 7,000 high school students and asked them to distinguish between blatantly fake news and credible sources. And students with fives on AP English and history were guessing. They had no idea. They had no way of being able to look at a source wow. or, you know, and so, so are we really teaching that or life skills like responsibility or, or empathy or, um, you know, energizing people around you to do good things, you know, like, like, there's a whole list of things, and they, they basically, because they're somewhat ambiguous, because they're hard to measure precisely, they've gotten shoved out of school. And so we, we invariably teach kids or have them study things that are easy to test at the expense of what's important to learn. And we do that over and over, day in and day out, in school after school after school across our country. And, and then we wonder why so many kids leave school Adrift, you know, angry, unable to really get traction. Not knowing and, what to do in college, spending yeah. 15, 20 grand for their first two semesters, jumping and changing their degree 10 times. It's like, yeah. So talk to me about like tests, scantrons, and the, the achievement gap because that's, there's this achievement gap that's super different. That's super, that's, it's, it's widening as every day goes by as far as the jobs changing, the environment's changing. And, and then the tests and the Scantron tests kind of becoming less and less and less and less applicable to how fast the world is actually changing. Yeah, I, I, if you start to look at, you know, take the SAT or the ACT, I mean, first of all, half the weight on that, which, which has a huge amount of effect on kids, is tied to what, we, what they call math, which is really low-level symbolic arithmetic. I mean... There's not, right. I think, today a, a question on the ACT or SAT math question, class that with a little bit of reformatting you couldn't do with photo math on your iPhone or Wolfram Alpha. It's low level. It's mechanics. It doesn't teach you how to think. It doesn't give you insight into the high-level content co concepts. It's just a nice, tidy 30-second to 45-second little test, little question that you can then populate 
a section with 45 of them and feel like you're doing something of consequence. And, and what I say is, if we replaced all of that with Sudoku, we would, we would have the exact same predictive power and we'd stop taking these things so seriously. And so, so when you realize it's <laughs> testing this, this very narrow set of proficiencies that's largely around how facile instead of how deep you are, it's largely around low level instead of high level, you know, you realize you're telling millions of kids they're not good who have enormous gifts and talents in life. And you're often telling a handful of kids they're great when, you know, they think this is a given. You know, I got an 800 on my SAT math. I'm a genius. Everything, everybody should get out of my way and let me just waltz into a great life. Well, you know, it's like life doesn't work that way. How about and all so the companies look- that don't want kids that are so knowledgeable they want kids that are like able to communicate and able to lead and able i mean what about that yeah and if you look at he's in our film and and he's a friend of mine he does great work but laszlo bach he he recently left google but he actually did the hard work of looking at how how what was the connection between grade point average and sats on somebody's performance at google and he concluded it's uncorrelated it it really (laughs) it really had no predictive value and so now they look for kids who have stared down failure, taken on complicated challenges, and persevered to get an answer. Kids that just sort of one way or another have shown they don't give up. I mean, all the things we instinctively, when I say them and somebody's listening, they would say, aha, of course. Well, you know, like, of course, except why isn't that the important thing? What, one of the things that just drives me crazy is our, our general societal belief that, that colleges should prioritize on kids with the highest SAT scores. You know, and somehow that's the qualified student and a student that has dealt with all sorts of challenge and difficulty in their life and has somehow powered through it is, is the kid we're doing a favor to when we admit them, the, the affirmative action candidate, wow. the kid getting a break That speaks volumes, man, right you, there. You know, I'll give you a great example. So I, I visited last spring the U.S. Naval Academy. This is one of the most innovative education institutions in the world. Seven years ago, I guess it's eight now, they – rethought entirely their admissions criteria. They put a lot more weight on tangible examples of a young adult dealing with enormous challenge and persevering through it, making a difference, making their community better, and and decrease the priority on SATs and grade point average or even Eagle Scout, things like that. Well, what did they tell me? Admiral Ted Carter, who runs it, you know, that their their diversity has gone way up. Their academic performance has gone up. Their completion rates have gone up. He was so proud that in the last boot camp, they had the lowest number of dropouts of any entering boot camp. And of the women in the boot camp, not one dropped out. Wow. And, and, he, and he, you look at this and you say, what if we have it all wrong? I mean, what if we should really be looking for what we know with the people around us, right? That, that, the, that the person who just has an inspiring vision of how they want to make their world better and just will not take no for an answer, that will not give up. Those are the people that make a difference. Right. And it's somebody that, that knows the difference between obstreperous and, and obstinate, you know, is like, who the heck cares, right? Somebody that can factor 18 polynomials quickly because they've drilled on it or because their parents have, have had them doing SAT test prep from age eight, who the hell cares, right? Like, why is that the currency of quality in our schools? So this is like... A little bit overwhelming maybe for someone tuning into this that maybe has never thought this way before, but it's almost like you can't unring the bell. Once you hear these things, you're like, oh my gosh. Now listen, there's this level of, hey, you know, hunker down and grind and work hard, but at the end of the day, why are we waiting for these kids to be in life to prepare them for life? I feel like there's so many things that we can do right now, even if we don't transform the whole education system and turn it upside down and change. There's things like you said that schools can do. I mean, taking your student out of the classroom, if you're a teacher and just making it an intention, you have a list of every student you have that every week you're going to take one of these students out of their class, whatever class they're in. And you're just going to speak life into them and say, Hey, Johnny, I want you to know that you've been doing great in in class. You've been doing great with your grades, but this is something that I see in you that is way more important to your ability to succeed in life. And I just see the way you've been communicating with your students, the way that you've been leading. I mean, if you do something like that, that's so much more meaningful to these kids future than kind of pushing them to get that A on the test. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And you know, you look, every school is in a community, you know, and you show me a community in America that doesn't have problems. You know, like 
Like if there's nothing we've done for our kids other than leaving them a bag full of big problems, I mean, that's what this generation has done for our youth is we've left them an enormous number of problems to work on. And so you look at every community has problems. Supposing you just said part of school is going to be unleashing our kids on problems in the community that they can make a difference in. You tell me these kids aren't going to be learning way more? Absolutely. Do you tell me these kids don't care? I mean, one of the things that really gets to me is when people run down our kids, you know, like, oh, they only care about video games. Oh, they're lazy. Oh, this or that or that. You know, they, they, they're largely checked out because we put them through this thing we call school where it's completely boring. And when they ask us when they're ever going to use it, most of what kids do, certainly in 7 through 12, when they ask, when am I ever going to use this? The only honest answer is you're not. And, and so you look at that, you say, you say, Let I mean, that's hardcore. Kids. It's so true. Yeah. Well, you just look, go through, go through, you know, you, most adults, when they look through grade seven through 12 curriculum, say, never use it, never use it, never use it, never use it. About the only thing that we'll ever use is to the extent we have kids, right. And, and increasingly most of that is either not done or is done formulaically, but, but you know, I mean, you know, it's like over and over we see that. And then if you don't believe it, just ask some college students basic questions from high school. They don't, they, they don't remember, you know, it's like, I'll give you an example. You know, so a professor at MIT went to students graduating from MIT. Graduation day is to think five on AP physics, five on calculus BC, perfect SATs or ACTs, accepted at MIT, four years at the preeminent engineering institution in the world, gives these graduates in their caps and gowns a light bulb, a wire, and a battery. It says, light up the light bulb. They can't, right? They can't. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's that tell us, right? I mean, how much are these kids really learning? And so, so back to this thing. Let them work on problems they care about. Do you think they'll learn more? Absolutely. Do you think they'll realize that they can make the world better? Absolutely. You know, do we really need to have 100% of the school day around the stuff that is easy for some you know, Washington, D.C. or Princeton, New Jersey bureaucrat to measure instead of something that the kids care about that will actually help them develop the skills they need. And if the school is not going to do it, then right now it has to be the parents. I mean, we've got a, I mean, my kids are two and one years old, but if you were able to do it all over again, what would you do differently with your kids? I mean, I would assume that you'd be like sitting down with them every night going through real practical life preparation things. Well, you know, our kids are funny. I mean, like I, I absolutely gave, and I, I, I'm not, I promise, not hypocritical. So I'm not a guy saying this on the podcast and then forcing my kids to go to Kumon math tutoring or something like that. And we basically just gave them permission to take their assignments as seriously or not seriously as they felt their assignments deserved. <laughs> and uh, some parents might be like cringing when they hear that, but I just kind of get excited oh, about that. Well, I, I, I think they, they are, you know, and you know, but my my twenty year old is is in his second gap year. He may never go to college, but he's off and running doing something he loves doing, that he's making money doing now. And right, you know, when I say to him, like, what do you think about college? He says, so let me see. I, I could drop what I'm doing now and spend four years and a lot of money in college and hope that on the back end I find something I love doing that somebody pays me to do. Um, you know, and and done right, college is more than that. I understand that. But, you know, read Academically Adrift if you think our kids are learning an enormous amount in college. Um, you know, the researchers who wrote that book concluded most kids learn very little in four years in college. It's, it's more of a paper credential than it is a life-changing experience. It's fun. It's interesting. You meet friends. I mean, a bunch of things that are good at it. Is it worth 100 to 300 k For a lot of families, perhaps not. And it's worth – and I think this is really important – we put the entirety of K through 12 on roulette wheel number 17, which is the college preparation spot. So we will spend 13 years preparing our kids for college. And I always ask, what happens if we spent 13 years preparing our kids for life? Right. And then ask college admissions officers to think differently about how they evaluate 18 year olds. Well, what about our conversation? Like, and then I got, we got to shift to the personal cause I have a few personal questions to ask before we end here. But we had this conversation about 
I mean, I'm working with all of these individuals on Upwork, which is like a freelancer website. And there's all these other types like freelancer.com. And I mean, what if the one of the classes or one of the grades or ninth and 10th grade, it was all about finding your creative skill, whether it was illustration, animation, voiceover, creating business plans, uh, content creation, you could do anything on these websites and you help kids earn $10,000 in one year. I mean, kids could earn a hundred grand and there's kids that I'm working with that are in high school in, in Serbia and they're making, you can see how much they've made on the website. I mean, what if we did that for our kids? And then by the time they're in you know, college, they're like, well, why? I mean, I, I'm ready. Like I'm already making 70, $80,000 a year doing what I love to do. You know, it's like, what if that, that would be remarkable, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be an amazing high school graduation requirement instead of two years of algebra, which honestly... Maybe one adult out of 10 ever uses any algebra. I mean, I, I have a PhD in math modeling. I work for a math-intensive chip company, and then I was in venture capital with a lot of financial issues and technology issues and everything else. I, I, don't, I never used algebra. <laughs> I mean, how can that be, right? I mean, how can that be that I went through, you know, I wasn't like a painter or something. I was in technology and financially intensive professions, I certainly never used geometry, I never used trig, I never used calculus, I never used algebra. That is grade nine through 12. And so, so back to your Upwork example, which I love, which is if you said that's a requirement of high school, this, a reader should not hear us saying that and, and infer that we're saying that should be all of high school. What right. we're saying is that should be part of high school. Totally. And, and, and if a kid came out of high school and you said five highly ranked assignments on Upwork that paid well above the minimum wage is one of the requirements to graduate from high school. Find your lane, get good at something that lets you command, you know, some level of market value as one of the things you do in high school. Man, that's, that's incredibly epic. liberating. That's incredibly well, liberating. And for to people. do that, you've got to, you've actually got to try out five different skills. So now they're tapping into different areas that bring a certain level of enjoyment in life. And they're like, well, out of the five, I like that one the most. Well, great. What else? You know, I mean, this is so fun, Ted, really. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I'll, make it, I'll make it very specific. I mean, we've, we've just screened through probably 30 people on Upwork trying to find a copywriter. These are all college graduates. So far, none of the 30 can give us writing samples that say we should hire this person. Right. You know, and so, so then you ask, like, okay, so all of these courses, I'm a huge fan of liberal arts. I was actually an English and physics major as an undergraduate, so I'm not dissing on an English major. I actually would rather interview a philosophy major than an accounting major. So, so trust me, I respect these well, things. Well, you're, you're talking to an accountant right now, so. <laughs> oh, sorry. You know, like, no, I'm just like, kidding. I mean, it's just kind of funny, right? It's like you would never know I'm an accountant because I would never talk about it unless it, yeah. I had to. <laughs> But, but if, if our kids are going to be writing in school, let's set the bar high. Let's say you've got to be so good, you can write with such a distinctive voice that people will recognize and appreciate that. And, right. you, know, you know, there's no value in the 21st century of being okay at something. You know, right. it's, it's just like nobody wants to hire anybody who's just okay at something. Robots are better than okay at almost anything that, that a student can be average at. And so you need... You need excellence. And so, you know, that idea, which I'm going to steal from you, but the idea of saying, you know, <laughs> you know, find your lane on Upwork and demonstrate that you're so good at something that you have this safety net going forward. Whether you go to college or not, you've got the ability to have a part-time job that pays you 15 bucks or more an hour. What and a gift like, to give to every 18-year-old. And that's like a minimum, really. Like there's kids on there that are younger that are like 25, 45 bucks an hour, and they're getting paid for that. Okay, so Ted, we got to do a quick shift here. So I want to sure. talk about these last two questions before we end the show. You took this year-long adventure with your family. I mean, how epic. You traveled to 37 countries. You kept the blog of the whole experience. Tell us about that. What inspired that, and kind of what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, you know, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version, but I, in business, I backed a company, and when the company got sold, one of the two founders just went rogue and took his wife and three kids and traveled for a year. And so my wife and I had always been thinking about that, and then we were living in South Carolina. Uh, you know, as with me, all things lead to school, but, you know, we sort of hit a point where our kids were in fourth and third grade just said, this is probably not the place for us to have our kids in school. Put her house on the market. It sold 
we had a week. And then we were kind of homeless with no place to go. <laughs> and and we, we said, well, what about what our friends do? Why don't we do that? And so to give you an idea how I've evolved, we initially thought of like interviewing and bringing a teacher with us because you know, my thinking at the time was, well, my kids would just fall so far behind without a teacher. And, you know, we didn't find the right person. It was probably a bad idea in the, in the first place. But, um, but then we traveled and we just, we realized we, we were pretty conscientious, maybe way more than we should have been. But our kids who are average good kids, but they're not like rockets. You know, these aren't, I'm not telling the story to say my kids are geniuses. I'm telling the story because any kid would do this. They finished their normal school year by November. And, and you realize as we traveled, we just would say, read books you're interested in that have to do with where we are, write a weekly, at least blog. So you get better at writing. And then because I've got a math background, I could turn anything we did when we were walking around into a math problem. And so we were doing lots of conversions and lots of estimation and lots of area rough estimates of area and volume estimates. And, you know, probability things and we just did a million things that were fun and interesting and you know you you realize that that the issue is not you know think of the price we're paying by insisting that every kid study the exact same thing as their classmates at exactly the same time in the sequence we think they have to study it and then you look at how these kids don't even remember it why would we ever do that you know like why wouldn't we be it Think about how many jobs are created in the last 10 years with just Facebook and then Instagram and then all the social media things blowing up. Like, yeah, think about, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, let the kids find things they think are interesting, work with them to broaden it to adjacent things. If a kid gets interested in reptiles, which happened with one of my kids, broaden it to reading books about reptiles, to writing about them, to, you know, like anything could be a window to everything. You know, analyzing any, it, yeah. Yeah, anything could be a window to everything. And so find that anything for a kid. Find the thing they want to learn about. Use it to broaden across a lot of different areas and largely get out of their way and let them run. And, you know, the question is, do we want every kid going on the same exact path at a half a mile an hour? Or do we want to let kids run with what they're interested in and, and kind of live with the fact that not every kid's going to learn the exact same thing, but what they do learn will be meaningful to them and they'll retain it. That's good. And they can go full speed. I mean, there's like the five yeah. mile per hour, but some of these kids can go 50. Like what's, what's, what's wrong with 50? <laughs> they, they, as you, as you were saying before, they will blow you away. If there's one surprise out of traveling for a year and seeing all these students and schools and everything, give a kid a chance to run with something they're interested in. They will just dazzle you. Yeah, they will. That's so good. Sure. Right, well, no, I mean, I mean it's, like, it's like it was so interesting. So many parents and so many teachers would say to me, you know, it's funny. Nowadays, if a kid gets interested in something, they can become an expert in a matter of days. Right. And, and I would say, shouldn't that have profound ramifications for what we do with kids in school? <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing as summer school to kids that are passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, and if we kind of put that burden on them, then they kind of take summer school as their psychological break to be normal when you know it's like we should be bringing that in and man your perspective is so amazing ted so okay so to end the dreamcast we asked this question if you could go back to your 18 year old self and give him advice what would you tell him oh my gosh um that's a that's i always love these blindside questions when i was 18 i actually gave a an incredibly controversial high school graduation speech um (laughs) you know but but honestly I think I would have taken the feedback I was getting from school a lot less seriously. And so, so I, I, you know, I just have talked about an SAT test, but I got, I don't think I ever missed a standardized math question through the GRE. You know, I got them all right. And, and I took that as telling me I was incredibly gifted when it came to math and physics. And so that was where I went, started in graduate school. And, and I've got pretty average SAT verbal scores. And I kind of took that to say, yeah, you know, that's not my passion. That's not my talent. That's not where I can make any contribution. Well, you fast forward, what did I learn in graduate school? I learned that to be really great in physics, you had to be conceptual and creative in that area. And I wasn't. And, and so I, I was at least, I wasn't smart enough to be a great physicist, but I was smart enough to realize I wasn't going to be. 
so I shifted gears. But now, years later, you know, I'm now an author and a public speaker. And and honestly, I should have had much better scores on my verbal capabilities than on my math capabilities. Well, it's but, so much more important for what you're doing right now, right? Yeah, but I grew up in you know a lower middle income neighborhood. Neither of my parents went to college. I didn't live and breathe SAT vocabulary words from age three. You know, I liked reading, but you know, it wasn't like I was doing flashcards on our trips or thing. All the things that I think give these rich kids an unfair advantage on the SAT verbal. I didn't have that. And so when I took those, I was okay. You know, like I, you wouldn't look at my scores and say he's behind. You wouldn't say he, he can't read and learn how to learn. But you would say, I think, or at least I probably said to my 18-year-old self, this isn't my power alley. This isn't where I'll be great. And because I was just really, really fast at low-level pattern recognition and symbolic manipulation, which we confuse with math and physics capability, and it really has nothing to do with it. Right. I said, man, this is my gift. And you know, so I get into Stanford, I started in, in a physics, and you know, like within a month I said, oh my God, I'm, I'm surrounded by these people that are just in a totally different universe from where I am. Right. And, and you, know, you realize, my God, and some of them didn't have very good SAT scores, but <laughs> they're, they're the ones who are gonna, you know, how many Nobel Prizes have actually been won by the tech in the lab who just makes the equipment work, but you know, got this signal over and over again in school that they weren't a particularly great scientist? Huh. You know, if we really gave the Nobel Prize credit for where it's deserved, there would be a very different set of people you know, on those charts and lists. So cool. I mean, Ted, your perspective again, I'm just... Thanks for coming on the Dreamcast, really. Thanks for taking your time. We're going to have to do this again, man. Like, this is like Excellent. the conversation has just begun. No, I really appreciate it. And good luck. I love what you're doing. Well, everyone tuning in, if you get a chance, most likely to succeed, the book, it's an audio format too, which, you know, that's my favorite, um, as well as just kind of getting that screening, that group screening at the school. Maybe you're not a teacher or superintendent. Maybe you're just a, a parent, or maybe you're not. You're just passionate about seeing change, or you know someone in that area. Well, kind of connect them, have a conversation, uh, send us a message. If you have any questions for me or Ted, we'd love to answer them. Also, if you have a high school student, you want to see that investment. I mean, have them sign up for our program, pioneerpurpose.com. It's also actually very geared towards millennial generation individuals up to 35 years old. If you're looking to be a part of a program like that, I encourage you strongly find out your purpose. Really draft your life plan with us. We would love to be a part of that and we'll see you next week on the Dreamcast.